are watching Murdoch Mysteries, a long-standing Canadian detective drama set in Victorian Toronto. It's everything your old bitty heart could want in a hokey, public broadcast, period, cozy mystery show without obnoxious moralizing. <coughs> Father Brown. I'm one of your hosts, Ivy. I'm the other one, Kalinda. And so this week we watched episode three, season one, The Knockout. And it's my turn to do the recap. I'm thrilled. I'm so excited. So, I will just begin. Okay, great. Spoilers ahead. Yeah, this is going to be a whole rundown of the whole episode. So, after failing to throw a fixed fight, a black boxer named Amos Robinson is found shot in his hotel room on the night of Queen Victoria's 76th birthday. This is important later. <laughs> Ivy! We have a time! Oh, do we? What is it? I didn't even look it up. Yeah, because if that means she's turning 76, that means it was 1895. Oh! Okay, so a little later than we thought. Yeah. Okay, so the immediate suspect is his wife, Fanny Robinson, who was found covered in blood holding the gun. Typical. Legally blonde or what? Murdoch immediately <laughs> doubts her guilt when he sees the way the blood has stained her dress rather than spraying from the close-range shot. Because she's black, however, the prosecution is eager to convict, so Murdoch doesn't have to solve the murder. He has to prove that Fanny couldn't have done it. Mm. First, he proves this through a blood spatter test by shooting a pig and examining the blood that kicks back from that. Brackenreed points out that a jury won't understand all of his science. And so Murdoch has to um, establish that the hotel clerk couldn't have failed to notice the gunshot for the hour or so he left his post, which he explained as like, he might not have heard the gunshot because of the fireworks going off because of Queen Victoria's birthday. So he finds out the clerk could only have failed to notice the gunshot for the hour or so, he left his post, establishing a timeline that also suggests Fanny's innocence. However, both of these defenses are nullified when Dr. Ogden hands him the bullet found in Amos's heart. Murdoch describes how the bullet has been modified to deliver a light load, which decreases the force of the shot and therefore its sound, meaning the blood spatter test is inaccurate and the shot wouldn't have been audible by the clerk even if he was inside at his post at the right time which means it could have been at any time during the night. Mm -hmm. Murdoch examines other suspects, including his boxing opponent that night, who admits to having a punch out with him, but is witnessed by Mrs. and Mr. Jeb Cutler, who were also at the boxing ring, the hotel, and were interested in Amos's boxing skills because they were thinking about hiring him, basically. It comes out that Ozzy Beers... Amos's long-standing manager was in discussions with Cutler to trade him. Ozzy insisted Amos was becoming too unpredictable on the road and hoped Cutler's trade would keep him out of trouble. Cutler believes that boxing is not a sport but a spectacle and thought marketing Amos as a brutish black man would be good business. When they are questioned as witnesses, they explain they were at the hotel to seduce Amos, but Murdoch finds this implausible. He's like, <laughs> that's bananas. You're lying. And Mrs. Cutler's like, that's so funny. Lesai, so judgmental. <laughs> All right, she's French. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny that Murdoch is so like 
that's you you can't believe you can't think that I would believe you <laughs> yeah but um anyways also I noticed they had a beautiful white house and she's wearing a really interesting dress um it's probably like the most exciting outfit we've seen so far <laughs> mm. um and she's got these great sunglasses as well that she looks so cute and oh yeah like she could have been a really fun reoccurring character but I think it's still too early for us to get reoccurring characters. Darn. We're still early days with nonsensically random Dutch angles and running cuts at one half speed. Did you notice that? <laughs> um, it was when they were chasing the ferret. They like oh. sped up the shot. <laughs> oh my gosh. Mostly I noticed um, at one point for whatever, for whatever reason... Murdoch and Bracken Reed were having a conversation in an office and they purposefully showed that the camera was outside the office and then like zoomed in through the doorway. Oh. Right. And the whole shot like happened. You So you couldn't see the doorway. So it's like, why did you have to show that the camera was like across the room? Why did, why did you need, why did you feel the need to do that? <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's got big, um, I've never used a camera before. I'm just going to experiment vibes yep <laughs> i mean obviously they have used the camera but just it's like early early camera work for them but it'll get better it's it'll get like way better i was even watching like a season nine episode the other day and it's also significant how much better the costumes get as well mm-hmm. um the whole production obviously gets more credibility and more funding <laughs> As the show goes on and it establishes itself as, like, a really good long-lasting show, obviously, because it's, like, on its 15th season now. Anyways. Bonkers. The Cutlers admit that Amos wasn't interested in their circus or their sex. He had won some money betting against himself and was going to leave the business to recommit to his wife and take them both to California. When re-examining press photos taken on the night of the murder, Murdoch notices that Ozzy is wearing a different tie and shirt in one of the photos. He questions Ozzy, knowing he did it because he's in love with Fanny. Murdoch asks why he would kill Amos and then just let her hang for it. Ozzy seems to be hoping that Fanny would be exonerated without him getting caught. Kind of ridiculous, to be honest. Like, does he not know what's going on? Anyways, Murdoch offers him a possible explanation of self-defense. Maybe things got violent and he had to kill Amos. Ozzy says that Amos had gotten violent and that's why he killed him. Uh, he confesses, exonerating Fanny. Later, Murdoch mentions to Brackenreed that the light-loaded barrel would suggest premeditation, meaning Ozzy lied and his self-defense argument would likely break down in court. So brutal. What? Just, I, I thought that that was kind of cold of Murdoch to... Trick him? Know that info... Yeah. Yeah, but he did it, and it was murder, and he premeditated it, and he knew. I know. And I mean, Fanny would have been hung for it for no yeah. reason. And I mean, it was unusual. I did find it kind of weird, especially because they didn't, like, fully... Exp- like, you sort of had to think about it for a bit afterwards to be like, oh, he fed him that to get him to confess. Yeah. But at the same time, Ozzy... Ozzy was not a good guy because he just killed a man for his own selfish reasons and then was going to let the woman he apparently killed this man for 
paying for it. It's like, have a backbone, man. Yep. It's really, like, selfish of him. Yeah. Anywho. They also talked a lot about, um, like, Murdoch's intuition in this episode. I mean, obviously this episode was airing in, like, 2007 or wherever. And, um, you know, it was big, like, uh, oh, we're going to establish that racism is bad. <laughs> right? Yep. Mid-2000s version. So it doesn't really, like, it's not, like, that impressive, really. It's mm-hmm. still just, you know, it's a hokey murder mystery. Um, <laughs> but the kind of discussion of intuition, I don't know if it's also sort of like a, ah, Murdoch's not racist. <laughs> Because in his heart. (laughs) But I guess it's also supposed to just, like, from maybe a more, like, forgiving standpoint. (laughs) Supposed to just be, like, Murdoch, the man of science and logic. He's not without his intuition or he's not without his own personal bias or search for justice or his, his own personal sense of right and wrong, you know? Yeah, he's not just a robot. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, at the same time, intuition is is a scientific thing. You can... Mm-hmm. I don't know if at the time they really would have talked about it like that. Since they also mes- mentioned um, Darwin. Yeah. And it's like... I mean, I'm sh- I also do think that, like, obviously Dr. Ogden would know about Darwinism because... Is it Darwinism or is something else Darwinism? Anyways, the, the evolutionary theory, right? Mm-hmm. Because she's a doctor. But I also imagine Murdoch would know about it, too. Because yeah. he's, how do you not? It's, like, kind of a big deal. But actually, now that I say that, I sh- maybe should have looked up exactly when that would have been in relation to them. If, like, how n- new it was. I'm going to look that up right now. Theory of evolution. That whole exchange between Ogden and Murdoch talking about Darwin because she kept calling the dead body, right? Amos, like a specimen or whatever. Uh-huh. Because of just how, like, built he was or something. Like, I was so uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean... I was so uncomfortable that whole time. Oh, I mean, it's not like... It's obviously not a comfortable scene, but at the same time, like, Ogden kind of talks about people like that a lot. So maybe I'm desensitized to Oh, no, it it was less necessarily how Ogden referred to a dead body and more the way that, like, Murdoch took offense to it and their, like, weird kind of flirting. That that was what made me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. It was not the smoothest. No. <laughs> no, it wasn't. They, they don't have the same charm that Crabtree had. <sighs> we got to see a lot of Crabtree in this. He was so cute. Yeah. Okay, so Darwin's theory of evolution. Right. First formulated in 1859. So literally only like 60, okay. 60, 33 years before Murdoch. Yeah. It's so bananas. And I mean, I know that's the whole premise of the show is that like, you know, it was a time of so much change and everything. And it's like, but it really is so much change. Like, yeah, these people were alive for a lot of things. Like it's true. The fact that Amos and his wife and then Ozzy, they're American and they're from Georgia. Oh yeah. And like Ozzy, I mean, I can't really tell how old Ozzy is. 
I mean, he talked about Amos like Amos was a, a, a like a sort of a son to him, but then he's in love with Fanny, so <laughs> shifty on the age. Yeah, he talked about like finding Amos on the street in, when he was fourteen, right? And that was twelve years ago. Oh, okay, so yeah. Amos would have only been like twenty six. My God, twenty six. Yeah, would have been young. But then Ozzy would have had to be an adult by that time. Mm-hmm. But anyways, just the point being that it's possible that Ozzy was born a slave, you know? Oh, jeez, yeah, yeah. And, like, how bananas, like... Yeah, they talked a lot, like, with Amos being a boxer and then being quote-unquote bought. Right. They kept on saying sold. I wrote in my recap, I just said traded because that felt less bad. <laughs> like that, it, yeah. The fact that they were saying that he was sold really like irked me. Yeah. So uncomfortable. Yeah. A lot of talk about then like the proper terminology of the time for oh, how yeah. to refer to black people. Right. Yeah. And it is funny how, like, that changes, because the point was that Murdoch was saying something that was the politically correct version of the time, but that, you know, hearing it now, you're like, excuse me? <laughs> that sounds, uh... That sounds bad. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, doesn't sound good. But yeah, and I mean, they're obviously also talking about, like, the bias of a jury, um, the fact that she's a black woman, nobody really, like, has any kind of doubt that she did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Bracken Reed even like pointly, pointedly says she's not a nice little Presbyterian girl, right? Like, and the thing is, we meet a nice Presbyterian girl. We meet several, obviously. They they just keep popping up, obviously. But there's one in particular that I always think of um, in this show, and she's a fucking nightmare. Jeez, she's a total nightmare. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. But she's great fun to watch, obviously, entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> but a nightmare. But a nightmare. Yeah, Bracken Reed sort of says at one point that, you know, the town hasn't seen a woman hang in a long time. Mm-hmm. And almost like how they might be excited by that. Oh, is that what he was saying? At least that's that's what it seemed like to me, was that Bracken Reed was saying that they were sort of eager to see a black woman hang. Do you know I what I mean? I think they were eager to convict her, definitely. But in the moment when I watched it, I thought that he was saying, like, you know, this is still, like, just impressing him with, like, that this would be a big deal. Oh. And mm-hmm. nobody really wants to see a woman hang. Oh. The opposite. But that that was very likely to be what would mm-hmm. happen. And I... I mean, I might have been wrong, but I did think that the point was that Bracken Reed was saying, like, oh, if you def- if you think that she didn't do it, then go for it, because we don't want that. I see. Mm-hmm. And I did think about looking up more about, because, um, I mean, obviously that's, like, a big premise of Chicago, the, the musical. <laughs> oh. Is that, you know, these were all women on death row, but... Maybe I'm totally mistaking this. Maybe I'm like, but I thought that the premise was sort of that, like, the spectacle of being on death row, right? But it didn't hold any weight until, like, have you seen Chicago? No, I still have not seen it. Oh. Uh, well, I've seen some of it. I saw some bits. And I think for whatever reason, we, I was watching it late at night. Mm-hmm. Watched an hour of it. 
and then fell asleep. Yeah, so I think that, like, the premise of the musical, what I think it is, I, I might be misremembering, is that these are women on death row, but the threat of being hung is sort of still too vague. It's more about being, like, a celebrity until this one woman who is a foreigner and can't speak English very well and who didn't commit murder while the other ones totally did, she is hung halfway through the show. Whoa. And it's a big deal because, like, having a woman hung is just not... It's a line, you know? Mm. They haven't Mm. crossed. But I think the point... They didn't really think that they would die on death row until that happened. Ah. And then it did become a fight for their life. Yeah. They knew they were on death row, but the death didn't feel imminent. Yeah. All right. So is that most of the episode then? Is that what we wanted to cover for the plot? Yep. Okay, great. Wow. That was really, really high. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you do your research on? I did my research on a boxing. Oh, right. It was pretty interesting. There's there's a lot of rules to modern boxing that I did not get into because it was too complicated. <laughs> but I did I did want to go over, I guess, some of the rules. But first, I'm going to do sort of the history. So boxing as a hand-to-hand combat sport um, dates back to 3000 or 2000 BC. Mm-hmm from what they called the ancient Near East, so m- which compromises uh, most of the modern Middle East and Egypt or on the Arabian Peninsula kind of area. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is art depicting boxing from Egypt from 1350 BC, and they have bands on their wrists for wrist support. Did you say 13? 1350? Yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know. Long, long time ago. Uh, and there's a fresco in Crete from 1650 BC. And that's the earliest documentation of boxing gloves. On that fresco, you see two people sort of, yeah, punching each other, but with visible sort of like things on their hands, gloves on their hands. Mm-hmm. That's bananas. I know. And then... It was actually, in ancient Greece, it was established as an Olympic game in 688 BC. Mm-hmm. So still 2,000, 3,000 years ago, all of this was some of the first, yeah, boxing with rules. So boxers at that time um, of the Olympic Games would wear leather thongs around their hands. And there weren't any rounds. It, they would just sort of like hit each other until someone acknowledged defeat or couldn't continue, mostly just hitting each other in the head. Oh my gosh. Um, and there were no weight classes. So a lot of... Jesus. The, um, <laughs> yeah. Not a bit of a free-for-all. <laughs> so a lot of so a lot of people that obviously... Um, that just doesn't sound like a fun time. No. Really not. Honestly, and it gets worse. Because um, in ancient Rome, it became a spectator sport. And they started to put metal in the leather thongs that they put on their hands. Yeah. Um, and some of it, like, with spikes and studs and stuff. So it was, like, really what? gnarly. 
Yeah. How is that fun? I don't... Like, even even to watch. <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> the whole point of, like, the weight classes is that it's, like, it's, like, a viable fight. <laughs> if you can't... Yeah. You're competing against, like, a 250-pound guy. No one's betting on you. Like... Yeah. Well, I don't know. Did they do bets back then? I'm sure they did. <laughs> yeah, they might have. So... Yeah, but it looks like at least in the history, um, boxing at that point really fell off with the fall of the Roman Empire. Mm. And then the next time that we see a resurgence in boxing, um, it's in the 16th century in England. Um, And some of the reason that it became more common for people to practice, you know, the art of fist fighting was because it started to become less common to carry a sword on you. Mm. And so then they, if you're not carrying a sword, how else are you going to defend yourself? So, um, yeah, that's all the resurgence of bare knuckle. So, like, you know, no gloves or anything. Mm-hmm. And that form of fighting that they talked about in the 16th century uh, wasn't just fist fighting. It also included, like, fencing and cudgeling. Fencing? Like, like as in with a, with a foil and... Yeah, I believe so. so because but I thought you said the point was that no swords. Sorry, yes. That was why they started learning more about how to box. But when they actually, like, did tournaments... Oh, okay. Or, like, 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 it, like fought each other in a ring or any kind of thing, which was called prize fighting, mm-hmm. um, then they would end up doing a lot of... They would incorporate a lot of different stuff. And there were no written rules, again. No weight divisions, again. No rounds. No referee. It was just, like, total chaos. And there were different rules in different places. Mm-hmm. You know what this is like? Yeah. Hmm. A Knight's Tale. Yeah. Like, it would have been those kinds of tournaments, probably. Yeah. Just a free-for-all. Like, I mean, in the movie. <laughs> in the movie, yeah. he did uh, jousting... And sword fighting, but the sword fighting totally looks like a boxing ring, right? Like, they were, you know, a Knight's Tale is full of anachronisms like that, where it's like sort of a, sort of like, a, whatever, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. but then he drops the sword fighting because he's like, no, the jousting gives better prizes. Anyways, but he's a really good swordsman. That's like his mm-hmm. forte, actually. But yeah, they make it totally like, like as if it's boxing, but I don't think he actually boxes. Anyways, that's a little aside. <laughs> movie <laughs> corner. <laughs> Great movie. It, it really is. I did not appreciate how good it was when it came out. And like every single time I've seen it since, it just gets better. Like you watch <laughs> it thinking that it's a dorky little like, it's not teen, but that it's for teens, right? And yeah, and it's just a little like, uh, it's so bananas. Why is she wearing this completely... <laughs> not time appropriate period appropriate thing and it's like no but that makes it (laughs) but it's so good it's so good (laughs) it's true oh man okay so yeah so prize fighting so yeah so it seems at least even when i was trying to read the article talking about prize fighting and boxing it seemed kind of like they used the terms interchangeably but Mm -hmm. as rules start to be introduced um, there's at the same time this sense that it's unregulated or that it's illegal, yeah. even though there's rules, oh. which sort of 
it's like, well, then how do you enforce the rules in this illegal anyway? It's, it's, it's kind of, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and I think it's just because there's a lot of overlap between like sanctioned fights and ones that aren't. Yeah. I mean, there's still, that's still going on, I think. So in 1743, this is some of the first rules that we see. Broughton's, Broughton's rules by a champion, Jack Broughton. Broughton. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried to look it up and I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, so the rules that they made were designed to protect fighters and help prevent deaths. Uh, there were seven in total. They didn't list all seven, of course, in the article because why wouldn't they? But some of them were like, if a man went down and could not continue after a count of 30 seconds, the fight was over. Mm -hmm. A fighter, if they wanted to, could go down on one knee to end a round and begin a 30-second countdown, like at any time, if you just wanted to forfeit. Uh, and there was also, you, sh you were not allowed to hit a fighter if they were down, not allowed to grasp below the waist, and it also encouraged something called mufflers which was just uh padded bandages or like mittens for the hands mm -hmm. um during sparring sessions and trainings as well as like even in matches but it wasn't um necessary so for whatever reason like the ability to just forfeit they found it unmanly and so there were a lot of people that didn't like that rule. And so even though there were these set rules still in certain locations, they would like cut it and not allow people to, you know, just forfeit if they wanted to forfeit. They sort of wanted to make them go. Oh my God, that's so dumb. I it's know. It's like if you, don't, if you don't believe in forfeiting because that's unmanly, then just don't forfeit. <laughs> it just reminds me of that like Elizabeth Warren thing where somebody was like, what would you say to somebody who said that they believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? And she was like, well, then I would say just marry one woman. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's like if you don't believe in forfeiting, then just don't mm -hmm. forfeit. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, there's I guess like some of it too. some of the reason I think like even in modern day, like you, you can be penalized if you go down and try to like get out of continuing the fight even though you still can right if you were to like fake getting knocked unconscious kind of thing you could get penalized well yeah but that's because that's like that's a fix that's faking mm. but i don't know tell me more okay so those were the first set of rules in 1743 and then there were there's another set that has sort of uh morphed and become the modern ones that we have today which were the 1867 Marquise of Queensbury rules, uh, which were drafted by someone named John Chambers mm -hmm. uh, and then published under the patronage of the Marquise of Queensbury. The patronage? Yes. Hoity toity. Oh. <laughs> Originally, they were for amateur championships at Little Bridge in London, and it says for lightweights middleweights and heavyweights and as far as i can tell that's the first instance of actually seeing weight classes mm -hmm. and there were 12 rules uh again did not list all 12 but some of them were that it was a stand-up boxing match in a 12 foot square ring so it sort of like gave dimensions mm. for where it should happen 
there were three minute rounds with one minute rests in between. And if you got knocked down, there was a 10 second count. Uh, so shortened from 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. It banned any forms of wrestling. And it like really introduced gloves um, as a necessity. And they, <laughs> Wikipedia called it bloated mittens laced round the wrists. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, what what we think of boxing gloves to look like, you know? <laughs> but so one of the things that these gloves did is that they made the bouts longer and more strategic with more defense because the blows were softer. You could take more. Mm-hmm. So it meant that the, the rounds were longer. Um, and they started using the gloves for defense right? Um, to block rather than using before they would use their forearms. Which meant that it changed it changed the stance. So it used to be, and it's funny, like when we imagine someone going, put them up, and they sort of like, they puff out their chest and move their head back and have their fists in front of them, right? Oh, yeah. That sort of stance, that's because that was the old stance previously, because <laughs> um, they didn't have gloves, and so they would use their forearms a lot more for blocking. Right. And so then what happened was that uh, when they had the gloves, they would put the gloves more in front of their face. Yeah, and go lower. Yeah, and lean forward. So the gloves essentially kind of like changed some of the stance in the way that people boxed, which was really cool. So by the late 19th century, prize fighting was outlawed in England and much of the United States. And that's that's the specific wording is prize fighting. So I don't know if that means like all boxing, because clearly there are these rules. And then even at the time, while prize fighting is outlawed, there is a heavyweight champion under the Queensbury rules. So like, I not that illegal. <laughs> I know. Like, I don't I don't totally get how there's both at the same time. Mm. But so some of the reason I think it was outlawed, it's because there was an English case in 1882 called R. V. Coney, that found that bare-knuckle fighting was an assault occasioning actual bodily harm despite consent of participants. Mm-hmm. Sort of like dueling. Yeah. So they outlawed it. But it still happened at gambling venues and were often broken up by police. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of like where it would have been in Canada, I assume, as well around this time. Um, and it seems like a lot of people bet on them. They were happening in a gambling sort of situation and outlawed in certain places, but clearly still happening in others. And so this this is actually in 1897 was the first instance of film censorship in the U.S. And it was that several states banned the showing of prize fighting films. Oh, that had been made in Nevada because it was legal in Nevada, but a number of other states banned the showing of them. Mm-hmm. So according to the internet, that's the first instance of film censorship. So that's cool. Similarly, in 1892 is the first heavyweight champion under the Queensbury rules. And it's funny. Uh, it's someone called Gentleman Jim Corbett who defeated a man named John L. Sullivan. And the name of the guy in the show that Amos defeats is Bob Sullivan. Yeah. So I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but I thought that was cool. So in 1908, uh, amateur boxing became an Olympic sport. So they had banned prize fighting, but they still had um, now boxing. Amateur boxing. 
mm-hmm. meaning only rich people could do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, which is also like a- there's amateur boxing and there's professional boxing. And amateur boxing only has like three rounds. So early on, do you remember even in the show when we were watching it, it was like, you're supposed to go down in the 31st. That meant they had had like 31 rounds. Yeah, I felt like I was mishearing that. (laughs) I know, but that's like wild because most of the time it's like 9 to 12 or something. Mm -hmm. So clearly they had been like really dragging out this fight or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for this amateur boxing, when in 1908... It was only three rounds. And a lot of times, uh, people will use amateur boxing to jumpstart a career before going into the professional scene. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know, I feel like is not necessarily the case for other sports, but maybe I'm wrong. That just seemed odd to me. Um, and professional boxing is usually longer and it is more like 10 to 12 rounds. And there's no headgear. So in amateur boxing, they have they have headgear as well as like boxing gloves and even like often circles and stuff on the gloves because they're somewhat judged by like how well they contact and like where they hit specifically. And they're only supposed to hit with the certain part of the glove and all this stuff that seems really interesting. Um, but yeah. So that's that's most of it. The the last thing was of course cuz you you have two people who are just hitting each other in the head. So obviously there's medical concerns mm. cuz concussions <laughs> can cause permanent brain damage. And so from 1980 to 2007. So what is that over a 30 27 year time span? Mm-hmm. More than 200 boxers died due to ring or training injuries. Oh my god. I know, really awful. And so and that includes amateur boxing, professional boxing and some other form of boxing that I don't remember the name of. And so the American, British, Canadian and Australian medical associations have all called for banning boxing like starting in 1983. And there was a 2007 study showing that amateur boxers who wore the headgear, the headgear did not prevent brain damage. So there are, of course, people who are like saying like we shouldn't ban it. And I don't know. I'm biased. I'm biased and think that brain damage is bad. Yeah. Doesn't sound (laughs) worth it. Anything that encourages it, like we should stop doing. (laughs) Yeah. But I also am like, and if we ban it, then it's just going to go underground and get worse. Yeah. If anything, they have now, um, since 2016, they have started allowing professional boxers to be admitted into the Olympics, into the Olympic Games. Hmm. And places that had previously banned boxing within, like, the last decade or something have um, unbanned it. I don't know. It... I don't like it. <laughs> I know. It's it's why I don't like football, because I feel like, why would I want to spend time watching, like, what is it, 24 people just getting long-term brain damage? Yeah. Not just watching, but feeling as if I am encouraging that behavior. Yeah. I don't want to be getting enjoyment from people hurting themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. That was boxing! And the other thing about, like, that kind of regular trauma to the brain is that it's it doesn't just, like, catch up with you 
later on and stuff like that. It's like, it can change who you are as a person, you know? Yeah, it like, really can. That would be the worst. I mean, yeah. I guess that's kind of They've noticed, of I think, like higher, heightened levels of aggression and stuff. Yeah, exactly. With brain damage. Anywho. So what did you research, Ivy? You have not told me, and I'm curious. Yeah, so I did bloodstain pattern analysis. Nice. I was curious about that one. Yeah, and I almost did like ferrets or something, like really off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> but there's not that much to go on with ferrets, gotta say. So mm-hmm. bloodstain pattern analysis. I'm already like, because I listen to uh, like my favorite murder and stuff like that, you know, I've heard tell that bloodstain pattern analysis or BPA uh, is what I'm going to be calling it basically. Okay. Is um sort of questionable practice. So I went into this with bias and then, you know, the Wikipedia page, which is pretty much where my research began and ended, just basically also confirms it. So it's not, I'm not really going to get into like the science behind bloodstain pattern analysis because some of it has been sort of, you know, found less than scientific. But uh, anyway, so I'll just... So bloodstain pattern analysis, or BPA, is a method of analyzing crime scenes using biology and fluid dynamics to ascertain how blood spatter could have been created. So people have been using some form of BPA as far back as the 1500s. However, the first modern study was done in 1895. Oh my gosh. By a Dr. Edward Piotrowski from the University of Krakow. It was a paper on the formation, form, direction, and spreading of bloodstains after blunt trauma to the head, which sounds really like implausible to me just because blunt trauma is so vague and not very uniform. Um, I don't know how you would be able to like say like this is how it regularly behaves. Um, Anyway, For a long time, there was no full systematic study done of BPA and its use in court was not considered worthwhile until the 50s because, as Brackenreid says, like, it it wouldn't really mean anything to a jury. It wouldn't necessarily inform them any more than just looking at the blood splatter themselves. In... 1957, however, the California Supreme Court was the first American court to use a bloodstain pattern analyst as an expert witness. His name was Paul Kirk, and he would later act as an expert witness in the Sam Shepard case, which is about a man being accused of killing his wife, and it became the basis of the movie The Fugitive, which I've never seen (laughs) and don't really know anything about (laughs) No, yeah, haven't heard of it either. You've never heard of it? But that's not new for me. <laughs> okay, I've at least heard of it. It's got Harrison Ford in it. It's like a thriller, and the point is that the husband has to find his, he has to prove his innocence. Uh, anyways, this Paul Kirk guy's testimony asserted that the bloodstains were caused by a left-handed perpetrator and Shepard was right-handed. So, and he was exonerated. In 1971, a man named Herbert Leon... McDonnell published a book called Flight Characteristics and Stain Patterns of Human Blood after he was given a government grant to do research on it. He was frequently brought as an expert witness in court and began offering workshops to teach others his methods of analysis. His students were often also called as expert witnesses after only 40 hours of instruction with McDonnell. 
By the 80s, judges started to become more dubious of the validity of BPA, and different experts would come to different conclusions, and from 1995 to 2013, several people would publish research criticizing BPA and showing many of the principal series to be untested. Mm. So BPA is still used in court, even though there's much to suggest while it may help detectives inform their investigations, it's not a reliable tool for deciding guilt or innocence as it's too subjective. Mm. Some elements of BPA are more reliable than others, like I would say spray versus pooling, like in the show, or things that focus on solid elements of fluid dynamics like the velocity of blood spatter, but at the same time that's not really like actually going to help you solve a crime to know the speed (laughs) at which the blood went. Yeah. But human blood and anatomy complicate regular fluid dynamics, and there are multiple ways to achieve the same bloodstain pattern. It's not a one-to-one thing, like a fingerprint, where it's like, if you do this, then this blood spatter happens. Yeah, interesting. So this past week, in addition to Murdoch Mysteries that use this aspect of BPA. I watched another crime show called New Tricks, which I've been watching with my mom. It's like really long. It's not bad. And they determined the blood pattern on a piece of clothing, which was also spray, but was likely to be caused by someone breathing out with a nosebleed. So what? there's what? more than one way to cause a blood spatter than just like with a gunshot, you know? Yeah. But of course it was like narrative fiction. So they were like, Oh, it was spray, so therefore we know it was a nosebleed. (laughs) But it's also, like, because blood, the viscosity of blood changes over time. It changes person to person and so on. So it's really hard to, like, nail down the science of it. So now here's some nightmares. Uh, There's obviously many cases that have relied on BPA over the years and sound really shady now that we have heard some of this criticism. Yeah. In 95, a man named Warren Horanek was convicted for murder in a case that was initially supposed a suicide after a bloodstain pattern analyst testified that the droplets on his clothes indicated high-velocity spray from a gunshot, like in Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Afterward, other analysts contradicted his testimony, saying that the bloodstains could have been caused by offering metal- medical aid to the victim. Sorry, I'm like really hyper because I just had coffee. (laughs) Anyway, so the analyst himself said later that his findings weren't as strong as he said, but he still thought that the guy was guilty. And the guy is still in prison for this. Even though it's like, imagine, it was just a suicide. (laughs) And you're trying to help somebody and then you get convicted of murder. So... This is another problem with BPA, which is that regular jurors have no frame of reference to understand the limitations of the discipline. So experts might purport to have stronger findings than they should. Like with fingerprints, we are familiar enough with it to understand that sometimes it's a fragment, sometimes the fingerprint was already on the item before the crime, etc. But with BPA, people can't usually understand the physics of the process and trust someone who says they are giving you physical evidence that is scientifically based, yeah. but they don't actually understand the science behind it. So shows like CSI that were all about using the latest forensic science and technology kind of oversold how scientifically supported they were. And obviously it's the whole premise of Dexter too. 
Yeah, I feel like I remember in some in some show seeing them measuring out the distances between the splatter points to figure out how far away like a gunshot happened or something like real specific. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like just... it's really hard. I mean, even that Sam Shepard case where they were like, oh, this could only have been done by a left-handed person. And he's right-handed. I don't know what the murder was, but I'm, I was just, I don't know why I immediately assumed it was a stabbing. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. I could easily kill someone with my left hand, even though I'm right-handed. <laughs> yeah. And also it's like, how? How do you assume that that's, I mean, you can determine that because of where the stab wound is, but not from blood splatter, you know? Like, anyways, yeah. what, I don't know. Obviously, I didn't really look that far into this case, but that was just <laughs> how I sort of felt about it. Yeah, that is odd. There was another case where a man, David Kim, was accused of killing his whole family based on the questionability of eight drops of blood found on his clothes. Again, Whoa. eight analysts were brought in, three of those eight determining the droplets as being a result of high velocity and therefore presence from, you know, spray from the gunshot. And one of those three was later to be discovered to have no training and the prosecution had falsified his credentials. So that's another problem with the whole oh uh, science is because it's so subjective that then an analyst who's even thinking that they are being honest are, are likely to be biased based on who is bringing them into the case. Yeah. But obviously that's completely, that's completely just fraud. <laughs> but of course the jury has no way to know this. And even though the other five experts said that that wasn't the case, David Cam spent 13 years in prison before being acquitted, and the real killer was determined to be a known burglar with DNA that was found at the scene. Gee. Like, it's just not a good look, because no. I keep on coming <laughs> across these cases where really, like, like, standard policing could have saved it, and instead they relied on BPA to convict someone. Wow. Same thing happened. A woman was wrongfully convicted of killing her 10-year-old son after an oh intruder had stabbed him 12 times and then fought to escape <gasps> his mother, who chased him out. So she had visible signs of an aggressive attack fighting off this guy and had to have stitches. But she was convicted for murdering her own son and then wasn't exo fully exonerated until 2010 when a serial killer fitting the exact M.O. Uh, fessed up to also killing him. Oh my gosh. This is so messed up. I know. I know. And I don't know if like, you know, oh, these three cases will totally change your... And obviously, blood spatter analysis is being used ongoing. But the point is just that it's it's definitely not something you should think can determine guilt or innocence right like yeah if if everything is hinging on that then it's not it's not a solid case it's not very good it's not solid it's not beyond a shadow of a doubt you know wow yeah and uh and that was my my bit awesome thank you for teaching me something new that was so cool 
Yeah, and like I had heard that it was dubious, but I was also kind of like, well, I don't know, is this sort of conspiracy theorist? But no! And actually, there are so many things that you might see in court or especially on television, like I said, CSI, where you think that forensic scientists can do XYZ and all this stuff, and a lot of time it it's not that reliable, you know? Yeah. You know, even when you're like, oh, we're going to compare the the fibers found on the body with that in his car and stuff like that. What it means to compare fibers is really just to hold it up to the fibers in the car, or the carpet in the car, and be like, does it look the same? And maybe you could do a test on what the material is made out of, but you can't, like, prove that somebody with a red, you know, a carpet <laughs> that's very similar... Um, and made from, like, the same polyester. Like, you can really only determine whether or not something is, like, polyester versus silk versus something, right? Mm. It's not like you can do a a definitive, like, especially if everyone is using the same... I feel like everyone has... Everyone has Ikea stuff, <laughs> you know? Everyone has oh, Ikea yeah. water glasses and stuff. It's like, if that was used as a murder weapon, it'd be like, oh my god, who who couldn't it be? Right? Yeah. These two people happened to buy the same shirt from Forever 21. Like, geez. Yeah. So nothing is like, if, if it's a match, that's pretty damning. But also, it's about as much of a match as if you, you were to hold it up and touch it and look at it mm -hmm. yourself. You know, it's not like there is much more they can test than that. I mean, they can burn it to tell whether or not it's plastic, etc. But, yeah. Cool. I looked up one other little tidbit. Mm -hmm. And it was just that at, a, at some point, Dr. Ogden uh, stands up and goes to turn to walk away. And I saw her grab the back of her skirt. Mm -hmm. And as she turned, I could kind of tell, like, oh, I think she's wearing... A bustle pad, mm -hmm. which is like, for anyone who doesn't know, it's um, it would be a little bit of padding that would go right over the low back kind of butt area to hold up like a train of a skirt to give it a little shape. And so I looked up a little bit about the bustle, and I because I think I also saw Fanny wearing one. Mm -hmm. At least it it seemed it seemed like it. You know, it's it it is kind of hard to tell, but it does it did seem like they would be wearing that that they were wearing um, some small bustles. So I looked up a bit about a bustle. So in the eighteen eighties, they had really exaggerated bustles, mm -hmm. and it seemed like even that the fashion was moving fairly quickly. So even throughout that decade, there were different styles, and it got more exaggerated. But by like eighteen eighty nine. It just, like, there was a cutoff and large bustles just, like, were out of fashion. And bustles had been in fashion for for decades prior. So at the, at the timeline for the show, right, it's 1895. In 10 years' time, the bustle w had, like, completely disappeared. So by 1905, women just, you know, really stopped wearing bustles. At least this is, you know... I'm sure if a particular woman owned a particular garment and wanted to keep wearing it, she might. But um, in terms of the new fashion that was coming out, it was sort of, it had been made obsolete. The way that they instead made corsets 
was supposed to help with the the weight that would have been on the back of the dress or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we're at, at 1895, we're at the late, late stage of the bustle. So it is possible <laughs> that Dr. Ogden is wearing a bustle. I cannot prove it, of course, <laughs> but it seems like it. <laughs> well, she definitely probably would have been wearing something, even if it yeah. wasn't a bustle. You know, like some kind of petticoat or um, skirt skirt flouncing mm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it really would have been like at that point, because they they had made prior, they had made big, huge ones that were made out of crinoline or that had like a bunch of folds and different padding. But like at, at that point, like I think it probably would have been really kind of like a small pillow mm -hmm. and the thin one even. Yeah. Just something real small. Yeah. And actually I did notice that in the dresses, I didn't realize mm -hmm. that that was because of the bustle, but I noticed that the train was higher than the front. And I was like, <laughs> it's not a very good train, <laughs> but <laughs> it's probably because of the bustle. Yeah, I think so. So anyway, that was, that was one other thing I looked up. Is there, was there any other tidbitty research that you did? Yeah, I did because I was almost going to try and do the Derringer, which is the murder weapon that um, is used in this episode and it's a type of gun but the thing is that guns are like boring so I didn't <laughs> <laughs> but a derringer is um, I didn't really notice it for it throughout the episode because you know they're just are I just thought they were arbitrarily using like whatever gun but no they were using the gun that was actually used in the crime I see because you know they just left it's kind of I'm thinking about it now, it's like Ozzy just left the gun there. And, you know, to me, I'm like, what are you, crazy? That, you know, why would you just leave your murder weapon at the scene of the crime? But obviously they don't have fingerprints going at the time. But I'm, I still would have been kind of like, you know, they could maybe, people would know that you had that type of gun. People would be able to say, yeah, he bought that gun, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so a Derringer is basically, a, it's not a revolver, and it's not a semi-automatic or a full automatic, but it's basically like a tiny two-barrel gun, and the first ones were using like like powder, pepper powder or something like that. Gunpowder? Well, I mean, obviously, but I don't know. They called it like hot pepper or something like that. <laughs> oh. We really know nothing about yeah, that. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I clearly, I clearly did not commit. <laughs> but uh, just a cool little fun fact to go with it, the only reason why I would bring it up, or the only interesting thing about it, is that it happens to be the gun that John Wilkes Booth used to shoot Lincoln. Whoa. And um, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it's supposed to, you know, mean anything. But just that, like, around yeah. that time... That was a smart little tiny gun. And apparently it became very popular with among women because it could fit in a purse and everything. Wow. Cool. And then did I do anything else? Ferrets. <laughs> Cannot. Yeah. I looked up if ferrets could um, track blood and I got nothing to suggest that they could. <laughs> maybe it was just that particular ferret. Yeah, supposedly. maybe. Supposedly. <laughs> 
Yeah, they brought out a ferret. They were going to get a bloodhound. I definitely thought there was going to be a reason for that. It definitely felt a little like, like, let's just have a bit of fun with this ferret. (laughs) (laughs) There were a number of like, like the whole episode was just was going back and forth between we found something that's exonerated her. Oh, no, it doesn't exonerate her. Yeah, exactly. We found something that may fix it. No, it doesn't. And, like, that one in particular of being, like, oh, maybe we'll track this blood splatter. And it's, like, oh, no, he got his nose broken. Yeah, or that, like, they thought that he had died in the hallway and then was moved. Yeah. And then that wasn't actually the case. No, he had just gotten punched in the nose. (laughs) Any other thoughts, comments? But, no, I think that's everything I have to say. Do you have anything more to say? Nope. I think we just about covered it. Okay. All right. So that's it for today's episode covering season one, episode three. Next week, we'll be back talking about season one, episode four. Elementary, my dear Murdoch. I think we know who we're going to see in that one. I'm excited. Yeah, same, actually. Even though I don't like Sherlock, but I I think it'll be good. Hope to see you back next week. Have a good one.